This morning, uh, we're going to be focusing in on uh, 1 Corinthians 15. So after everything that Paul has said about being a body in chapters 12 to 14, now he's kind of shifting his focus. Um, So we're in Corinthians 15. You can go ahead and bring it up and we'll be reading it in a second. Um, But in in this chapter, we're going to be looking at it over the next few weeks. Um, Paul begins this extended and beautiful discussion about the resurrection. And, and, and he, he shows us how vital this doctrine is, not just uh, in, in the gospel proclamation, but also in, in, in our present lives, how this doctrine gives life to us, how hope in the resurrection is something that uh, isn't just uh, hope for tomorrow, but a hope that, that lives today and motivates us and empowers us for incredible things. So we'll be talking about the resurrection today. Now, we've been in the letter of, of 1 Corinthians for about eight months now. Um, we started back in chapter one, all the way back like in February. So it's been a while. And one of the things that you probably noticed is as we have been marching through this book is that a lot of Paul's focus is on problems with the young church, right? It was a church that was dealing with all kinds of issues, all kinds of, uh, you know, division, for instance. They were split into factions. They were hating each other and starting fights. They were dragging each other into court, suing each other, defrauding one another, taking advantage of one another. We learned that uh, they, they were going in and out of brothels, going in and, out of, in and out of pagan temples, and they basically had no regard for the way their lives should look in light of the gospel, and they had definitely no regard for the way their behavior impacted other people. The list goes on and on and on. It was a pretty messed up situation, as we see. And as you consider it, when you read this letter, it's easy to get shocked because I, I can't quite make heads or tails of the whole thing. How could it get so bad so quickly? You see, the Apostle Paul started the church in Corinth. He, he had gone into the city of Corinth, preached the gospel, people responded, and the church began there. He stayed for a little while. He says he built a foundation, and then he left and allowed others to build upon it. But within just a few short years, we find that, you know, he's getting reports about sin in the church. He's getting reports about the fighting and the factions, going into brothels, getting drunk on the Lord's Supper, all those different things. And the interesting thing is it only took a few years. Paul started the church and then maybe wrote these letters about three to five years later. It went off the rails fast. It started great, I'm sure. It started with power, as Paul says earlier. He preached Christ crucified. He preached in power. People responded, and yet in such a short time, they go off the rails. And what becomes clear as you read this letter, especially when you read it in its entirety, when you get to like experience it as one letter, not something that we've read over eight months. But what you see constantly repeated throughout the letter is that the problems in Corinth, their behavioral issues, were just the surface symptoms of of a much deeper, much more sinister issue, a heart issue. They had lost sight of the gospel Everything that they were doing flowed from the fact that they completely took their eyes off of what Jesus Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection. Paul keeps bringing that point up throughout. It's actually interesting. The letter starts in chapter 1 with an extended discussion on on the cross. It ends in chapter 15 with an extended discussion of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel message. So it's like these are like bookends. He's trying to get them all founded completely on the gospel message of what Jesus Christ has done, what Jesus Christ has accomplished, what he continues to do. 
He's not interested in, in them just getting their behavior in order. He's interested in them rebuilding their lives on the foundation of Christ's work. They lost that foundation. Here in, in chapter 15, as we begin to read, we'll find in verse 12 that there's, there is even, uh, uh, there's an even more specific problem in Corinth, and that's it, that there were many in the church who had come to deny the resurrection. To be specific, they denied uh, the belief in the future bodily resurrection of believers. It's not too clear what they thought about Christ's resurrection. Now, in the Bible, the hope of bodily resurrection was a pretty big deal, especially in the Old Testament prophets. It was a big part of Jewish life, especially for Paul and, and, and his contemporaries. Now, there was a group called the Sadducees we've heard about that didn't quite believe in the resurrection, but it's because they were wealthy and comfortable and they didn't really have any need for anything special after life. They were enjoying it all in the here and now. But for most Jewish folks in Paul's day, they had grown up hearing stories about this promise from the Old Testament. It's in the prophets like Isaiah and Hosea. See it in the Psalms. See it in Daniel. This idea that someday God was going to restore the glory of the kingdom, that he was going to gather up Israel and rule with them for eternity, and that all the dead would rise from the grave and, and they would experience the righteousness and the joy of God's glory for all eternity. They grew up hearing those stories. It gave them hope. And that would be the Jewish mindset, but in the Gentile, the non-Jewish mindset, they didn't hear those stories. They didn't grow up with those things. The Corinthians, who were mostly Gentiles, they grew up with a different kind of narrative. They grew up with Plato. Plato. Sorry. <laughs> they grew up hearing about philosophy. And, and what we know, what's pretty clear, is that the philosophy of the day wasn't much interested in things like bodily resurrection. They weren't really interested in bodies, really, at all. It was all about the spirit. It was all about the mind. It was all about reason. A lot of these movements cared more about escaping the flesh and escaping the world and just kind of retreating into the world of spirituality, the world behind the world. And you can bet that the Corinthians were really influenced by that. In fact, throughout the letter, Paul makes different references to the fact that they thought that they were wise and they were caught up in all the wisdom of the world. So you, you, you can bet that they were really seduced and kind of dragged into all that and had a hard time letting go of, of their Greek philosophical assumptions. And yet we know that Paul came to Corinth. We know that many of them believed. So somehow they had come to, you know, experience the truth of the gospel. And yet we find that they had a hard time letting go of their philosophy, which apparently uh, had led some of them to completely reject the promise of resurrection. It's likely that because they were wise and because they were, you know, the rulers and debaters of the age that they, they saw belief in the resurrection as gross, uh, as foolish, as unsophisticated. They didn't think God needed to have a plan for our bodies. Our bodies are just going to be destroyed. If you read in chapter six, you know, he talks about, you know, Paul addresses that head on, you know, uh, they had this attitude that like, oh, who cares? What, what, what does it matter? Our bodies are going to be destroyed anyway. And you can bet that was behind their thinking on why they can go into brothels and do all this bad stuff with their bodies. Well, who cares? Who cares about our bodies? It's all about the spirit. Bodies don't matter. They treated their bodies like a rental car or the way some people treat rental cars. It doesn't matter what I do to it doesn't matter long-term. There's no consequences. 
And yet Paul is telling them that, no, God cares greatly about what you do with your body. That's what he says in chapter 6. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You've been bought with a price. That is not, that's not even your body. Don't go unite it to, to prostitutes in the brothels. Don't go do that. So Paul's been addressing this issue head on all the way throughout the letter, and now it's kind of come to its climax. They've denied the resurrection, and for Paul, that's a big, big deal. As he's going to show through the chapter in a really masterfully crafted argument, he's going to show them that their, their denial of the resurrection has huge repercussions, that it completely takes them off the foundation that he had laid there. And when the foundation is broken, when the foundation is cracked, anything built on it, is going to come down. That's what's going on in Corinth. They lost their sight. They lost their foundation. And they built up a, a, a new philosophical Christianity that had no need for a core doctrine like resurrection. Now, we got a lot of verses to cover this morning, and I promise I'll get to the first one eventually. <laughs> in time. Patience. But I feel like we've already got something to consider here when we look at the example of the Corinthians throughout the entire letter. You see, they're, they're set in their ways. Sure, they liked Christianity, but they had ideas of their own. They had their own thoughts. And as we see now, if some part of the Christian message didn't fit into their worldview, they just got rid of it. They had no need for it. It's foolish. It's unsophisticated. Who could possibly believe that? So they got rid of it. And what we'll see as we read chapter 15 is that what they ended up doing was actually cutting out a vital part of the gospel message with huge repercussions, leaving them without a foundation. And as we look at the Corinthians and this, this you know, tendency, I don't know, if we stop and think about it, I, I, I think we'd see that the tendency continues in, in, in the church today. We still sometimes have this tendency to reject things that don't fit into our worldview, things that don't jive with our ideas. Sure, we might not reject vital points of doctrine like the, the resurrection, for example, although there's definitely plenty of people within you know, the, the world that are, claim to be Christians and have completely gotten rid of the resurrection or the miracles or anything like that. They believe the Bible is just more about ethics and moral examples. See that all over, you see that all over the place. But even outside of those corners... The rest of us are just as capable of ignoring the clear teachings of Scripture if they don't fit into our vision of reality. They don't fit into our views. We have our own ideas about this or that. I think throughout the gospel, things like loving your enemies, things like putting aside your rights for the sake of others, the many warnings throughout the entire Bible about the pursuit of wealth and power and status, and how that pursuit can lead you astray. The multiple calls to join Christ in humility and sacrifice, even if it means suffering. See, a lot of those passages, a lot of those concepts that come up a lot in the Bible, we tend to, you know, we, we could find ourselves wanting to look the other way on those things because they don't fit our previously determined ideas. Our obsession with strength, with individuality, with self-reliance, with victory, with winning, with status, with power. So in that sense, it is possible that perhaps we're not always 
entirely different from the Corinthians. We can be just as influenced by our culture and by our own ideas. We could just as easily find ourselves tempted to get rid of the parts of the Bible that don't fit into our plans. Of course, as Paul demonstrates, we can't do that. The repercussions are huge. The Bible is meant to challenge us. It's meant to to wake us up from our stupor, to pull us out of worldly patterns of thought and living and life and behavior. It's meant to do that. And instead of rejecting it, we have to let the Bible set the course for us. We have to let the story of God get rid of the parts of us that don't fit rather than doing it the other way around. So let's start reading in chapter 15 and verse 1. Paul says, I I, I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless, of course, you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still, are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But, the grace of, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believe. So as we see here, Paul's idea is I'm going to remind you. I'm going to get you started. I'm going to take you back to first base, right? It's like the, you know, who's that football coach? This is a ball, right? We got to start at the beginning. We got to start at ground zero at at step one, the gospel message. This is what I gave you. This is what I preached to you, he says. This is what you heard. And he does this amazing thing there. You might have noticed that he, he goes back and forth from like the past tense to the present tense and future tense. I preached it to you. You received it. You stand in it. You'll be saved by it. Showing them that this gospel message, this foundation that he laid there is timeless. It's the true yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It doesn't, it doesn't evolve. It doesn't change from one day to the next. Paul doesn't adjust his message when he goes from one city to another. The gospel message, that is, the gospel message stands. The gospel message is set. It's the foundation. I preached it. You received it. You stand in it, and you'll be saved by it. It's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So what is this gospel message? Gospel's a word we use a lot, right? It's a word, you know, my whole life, I, I knew how to use the word gospel. I didn't always necessarily know what it meant. What are we talking about when we say gospel? Of course, the word's used in different ways, right? Gospel could be a type of music, for example, um, it's a genre of, of, you know, New Testament literature. We'd say the first four books of the New Testament are Gospels because they reveal Jesus Christ. The word literally means good news. And when, when Paul's using gospel here, he's talking about specifically the good news of Jesus Christ, the message that he had delivered to them, that Jesus Christ is up to something in this world, that he's redeeming the world, that he's at work, in fact, you can actually see exactly what Paul lists as, as his gospel message. He tells us in verses 3 to 5. Interestingly enough, verses 3 to 5 there, it, it was probably, that was probably like a creed that people memorized. They didn't have the New Testament in this time or they had little bits and pieces of it. 
So they would memorize these creeds and that's what they would share with one another. And it's likely that what he recites here in verses three to five is one of those creeds that people memorized. That Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then of course, Paul adds to that creed by explaining that Jesus had also appeared to hundreds, to masses of people, to James' brother, and then that Paul includes himself in like his typical self-deprecating way that I too saw the risen Christ. And this message of Christ's death, it's, it's, it's of first importance that Jesus has died, Jesus was buried, and Jesus has risen again. It's of first importance. It doesn't change. It doesn't evolve. It's the central message of Christianity. It's the same back then. It's the same today. Paul even says he received this message. He passed it on to the Corinthians. Whether you heard it from me in verse 11 or from anyone else, this was the message that you received. Christ has died. Christ was buried. And Christ has risen. This was all done according to the scriptures. It was very important to Paul that they understand the resurrection of Christ, the work that he accomplished in his death and resurrection, I should say. It's very important that they understood that in light of God's story in the Old Testament. They wanted to make sure that people saw the gospel as not as this new story, this new beginning, but the climax of something that God has been up to from the beginning of creation. To redeem and restore creation, to undo the work of sin and death. It's all in accordance with the scriptures. And in Jesus Christ, we're seeing the climax of this story. This, was been, this has been the proclamation of the church from day one. And I'm kind of belaboring that point because it's a big deal. The gospel doesn't change. The message of salvation doesn't change. The belief that has bound the church together for 2,000 years has not changed in these core doctrines. Every now and then you'll see, um, you know, when you're flipping through the channels, you'll watch the History Channel, you'll read maybe, you know, the, the poorly researched books like, you know, the Da Vinci Code, for example, and they'll claim things like the resurrection, other core values of the church, that those things were just, they developed over time. They were added much, much later. But as Paul demonstrates here, the gospel message was the same from day one. It hasn't evolved. It wasn't added in the third century or fourth century or whatever Da Vinci Code says. Sorry, I'm, <laughs> I'm like 10 years behind in my anger about the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> I know I was supposed to be mad about this like in 2003 and I got to catch up on my Christian outrage. Have you heard of this Harry Potter book that kids are? <laughs> but yeah, the message of Christ hasn't changed. The message of salvation, this death and resurrection of our Savior has not changed. Not until the Corinthians got involved anyway and tried to change it. So Paul now has refocused the Corinthians on the gospel message reestablished them, brought them back to the foundation that he had laid there, there, you know, some three to five years earlier. But now what he's going to do is hypothetically indulge the Corinthians of their foolish thinking. He's going to say, okay, let's, let's assume for a second that you're right, that there is no resurrection. And he's going to use like a series of hypothetical arguments to show them how foolish their thinking is, how much damage that does to the gospel proclamation, to the church itself, to salvation itself how dangerous it is. So he indulges in their thinking and he shows them, let's, let's, let's carry your thinking through to its logical conclusion. 
If you're going to say there's no such thing as bodily resurrection, why stop there? And so he goes into a series of attacks here, starting in verse 12. And some of it's pretty striking, so brace yourself. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then all those people who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. So he pushes their rejection to its logical conclusion and shows how much damage that thinking does. If there's no such thing as bodily resurrection, then clearly Jesus himself could not have been raised from the dead. If you guys are right, Corinthians, and we have some real problems if that's the case, because first, our, our gospel preaching, everything we've said is in vain. Their belief is in vain. Further, in verse 15, everyone that proclaims the gospel would be a liar, misrepresenting God, misrepresenting the truth. Their faith, our faith would be futile. We would still be in our sins. Guilty. Verse 18, everyone who's already died, he says they, would, they will have perished forever. And then finally, verse 19, all of us who have given ourselves to this gospel message, who have embraced this belief, we should just be pitied. These are striking statements. But he's showing them that when the foundation of the gospel is busted, the whole thing comes apart. Belief matters. Belief matters because it'll unravel in our lives. Without the resurrection, the preaching of the apostles would be reduced to a bunch of empty lies. The cross loses all its power. You see, the Romans, they crucified a lot of people in that era. And yet what makes Jesus different is the fact that he endured the cross, that he scorned its shame, that he was risen again, that he sits victoriously at God's right hand now. If Jesus would have stayed in the tomb, if he had not been risen, then there would be no gospel to proclaim. There'd be no good news. There'd be no church. There'd be no sacrifice for sin. The story of Jesus would be the story of a false Messiah who stood up to the empire and died lost. And if that's the case, this church, these people that have based their lives on the teachings of this Jesus, it's all in vain. See, he's not interested in a version of Christianity that gets rid of the gospel, that gets rid of the work of Christ and bringing us life eternal. He's not interested in the versions of Christianity that you see today that just take all the moral rules out and say, hey, let's just try to live to this and get rid of all these other doctrines. Paul's not interested in that. Why? Because that's not the gospel he received. That's not the gospel that built the church, that established faith in Corinth and in other cities in the New Testament that spread throughout the empire that we sit in continuity with 2,000 years later. That's not the gospel. We can't mess with these things. When the foundation's gone, it all crumbles. And we'd be worthy of only pity for giving ourselves to such a lie. So he shows them the errors in their thinking. He shows them the terrible consequences of this denial. 
And then then God, verse 20, he shifts from that bummer that we just read (laughs) to the amazing truth of the resurrection, to the awesome reality of what Christ has done for what it means. Verse 20, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made, shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted, the one who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Admittedly, a very confusing passage. (laughs) Try reading it out loud. All that stuff about subjection is he's quoting from the Psalms about the idea that the, son, that, that the Messiah would present the kingdom to God. And his point here is that, that that day will come eventually when Jesus returns, when he has presented the kingdom and, and Jesus the Son will present that kingdom to the Father. But it's an interesting passage here. You know, sometimes I think about the, the, the truth and the hope of what's being said here about death and about resurrection Sometimes, um, in an effort to minimize the sting of death um, and the fear that comes from recognizing our own mortality, the anxiety that we get when we consider that, sometimes you'll hear people say things like, well, death is just simply a natural part of life, right? It's all part of the circle of life. I think there's a song about that. And this idea of death is just kind of, you know, it's obviously inevitable, and, and of course that's true. Uh, but the, you know, the, the, the sooner we make peace with this natural death that we all are going to face, the sooner we accept the fact, the better off we're going to be. And yet the Bible presents a different vision of death, a different outlook on death. It's not natural in the sense that it was not part of God's original plan for creation. When you read it in Genesis 1 and 2, he doesn't make death and say it's good. Death is a consequence of the fall, a consequence of rebellion. It's not something he built into the natural created order of things. It's something that came into this world and tainted it because man turned from God's life that he offered him because of rebellion. It's a part of the curse. And you'd probably notice as I was reading, he, uh, Paul goes as far as to you know, personify death, make, you know, like he's a person as an enemy that's waging war against creation, waging war against God. Death is God's enemy. It's not some natural good thing that he built into the created order. It's a consequence of the fall. My man was created for life, for life eternal. Death is a corruption of God's plans brought about by the fall. The great hope of the Bible, the great hope of the Christian message of the gospel that Paul proclaimed that we stand in today is that Christ took on the power of death, this evil death. Christ took on its power and he won. 
Christ defeated death. This happened at the cross when Jesus absorbed the worst that death had to offer. When he took on the sins of all creation, dying the death that we all deserve. Jesus took death on himself and Jesus rose again. That's the hope of the gospel. Death has been defeated. Amen. Death has been defeated. It thought it had a victory in Christ, right? In Acts 2, when, when the apostle Peter is giving one of his first great sermons, he says that God raised Christ up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for Christ to be held under death's power. Death lost. Death thought it had a victory and yet finds itself swallowed up in triumph as Jesus raises again, appearing to all these witnesses and then finally ascends to God's right hands to rule over until the day he returns to once and for all deal with death, to put the world to right. And amazingly, as Paul discovers here, as Paul's, I'm sorry, as Paul's explaining here, not only has Christ been raised up in resurrection life, but all those who belong to Christ will eventually be risen with him. That's us. All those who belong to Christ will be raised up, will raise up with him. And he is like this first fruits, meaning he's the first harvest of a much greater harvest to come. See, the work of resurrection has incredible implications, of course. It's, it's what makes the gospel the gospel. And yet it also is an incredible source of hope for us today that not only has Christ defeated death, but we will stand with him in victory over death. Amen. In Romans 8, there's another great passage where Paul talks about a lot of these themes. And he says, we're, and this is all talking about the resurrection and what Christ has accomplished in the gospel. He says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Christ is risen, which means sin and death no longer have the power to separate us from the love of God. The victory has been won, and someday Christ will return to finish the work he started, and death will be swallowed up and destroyed forever. On that day, as we read in Corinthians 15, Christ will deliver the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule every authority and every power. See, Paul in this passage is looking forward to the final stage of God's awesome plan of redemption. When the powers of sin and death are, are destroyed once and for all and the whole creation is made new, redeemed once and for all from the, the power of the curse. As we read in Revelation 21, right? One of the last chapters of the Bible. A passage that I always seemed, it always seems to come up when I'm up here. After the resurrection, we read that, that God himself will come dwell for all eternity with man, that he will wipe every tear from their eyes, that death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And God announces, behold, I am making all things new. That's in Revelation 21, but Paul has it in mind here in Corinthians 15. God will be all and in all. His glory will cover the earth, will cover all creation. And his, his enemies, death and sin, all those things that try to separate us from him will be vanquished once and for all. That is the great hope to which all history 
is headed. This hope extends throughout the entire Bible, beginning in the Old Testament, of course, reaching its climax in Jesus Christ. We see it from Genesis on. Sin and death has made a mess of things, but God has not abandoned his creation. God has not turned from us. And rather than just scrapping all creation and starting over, God's faithful. And God says, I'm going to bring them through the curse. That's the story of the Old Testament. That's the story of the New Testament. Through Israel first and through Jesus finally. God is bringing us through the curse. In the same way a a ship is brought through a storm. And sure, as we've seen throughout history, and we've seen in our own lives, being brought through the curse under God's power, it means we're going to have to experience pain sometimes. Like a boat getting tossed around on the waves, we're going you know, to take on water sometimes. We're going to get battered a little bit. But the hope of the gospel is that God has overcome, that he'll bring us through it, that he's faithful And that even though the storms are going crazy and even though it might not look like it, God is working things together for his ultimate good. He'll bring us through. Most of us know what I'm talking about, especially when we're talking about the power of death, this enemy that's corrupting creation. We know that death is a powerful enemy. We've experienced it. We've all felt grief. We've all felt loss when death take someone from us. And yet, Paul says in another letter he wrote in Thessalonians 4, we don't grieve as as those who have no hope. When we experience the pain, when we experience the loss, we grieve, we mourn, we cry. We don't pretend like we're fine with it. It's a loss. But we grieve as those who have hope that know that death cannot separate us. Death has already been defeated. I know sometimes, um, I've experienced this myself, sometimes in our grief, we'll, you know, kind of tell ourselves that, well, God is, God is good and God's plan is good. And so somehow, you know, mysteriously, when I'm facing death or facing this pain, I'm going to have to, like, convince myself that this is mysteriously good in some way. That somehow if I look at it all with the right perspective, that I could feel better. And of course, God does do amazing things in the face of tragedy. I've seen it time and time again. And yet death is not good. We should never say death is good. It's God's enemy. We shouldn't lie to ourselves and say we're fine with it. I'm not fine with it. We were made for something more than this. We were made for eternal life with Christ. Death is the enemy. Death is corruption. Death is trying to undo the glory of God in this world. What's good is that we have hope because we know death has been defeated. Amen? Amen. What's good is that we know that death can't separate us, that we can face death and we can face it as conquerors. We can look at it as Paul will look at it later in Corinthians, later in the chapter and say, where's your sting? You have no victory here. We're going to get through this. God's got a plan that endures beyond all of this. The grave does not win. We don't stay in the grave. We rise in new life. Death is defeated. It is an enemy of God. 
And God, through Christ, is going to destroy every enemy, every rule and authority and power that tries to challenge what he's doing in this world. That day is coming. That is the hope of the Bible. God will bring us through it. He will take us through the storms. He will take us through the pain, through the grief, through the loss that we experience. And he will give us hope that endures beyond all that. He has given us that hope. And now you and I walk in that hope. All because of what Christ has done. I want to finish by looking at kind of five passages, five verses here in Paul's letter that, you know, kind of in typical Paul way, uh, it's kind of a sudden shift. After all this amazing talk of the resurrection, explaining how Christ's resurrection helped us understand our own and this amazing triumph of God over the powers of sin and death, after all that, he turns course and goes right back to the hypothetical arguments he was making earlier. He goes back to indulging them in their foolish thinking that there is no resurrection. It's a very sudden shift. But along the way, we do get a really cool example of how the resurrection gave meaning to Paul's present life. You see, it wasn't some pie-in-the-sky thing that he, you know, just, oh, someday things will be good. It wasn't just something for the future, in fact. He believed in the resurrection and the power of the resurrection and that it was a source of hope and motivation in the very present day. The resurrection wasn't just some far-off concept. It's for right now. It's a living faith. It's a living doctrine that gives us hope. So in verse 29, Paul writes, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Weird statement. We'll come back to that. If the dead are not raised at all, why are other people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. So it's a great passage, but he does say something strange there in verse 29. Uh, He makes a reference to this baptism on behalf of the dead. Um, Anyone that's studied Paul can tell you it's one of the more puzzling verses in the entire Bible, um, in the entire New Testament. Um, There's dozens of different explanations of what's going on here. Um, The most likely one that I I think anyway, and that a lot of scholars that I read point to, is that uh, apparently the Corinthians developed this kind of ritual where they were Uh, undergoing baptism on behalf of dead relatives, most likely dead Christians who weren't ever baptized themselves. It's a strange thing. Uh, There's no other reference to anything like this in the New Testament. Uh, There's no other uh, reference to it in the early church. It's not something that the church has ever done. You don't, you know, every passage that you see in the New Testament about baptism speaks of it being a very, you know, it's personal. It's not something you do on behalf of other people. It can't be transferred, uh, whether you're living or dead. So whatever it is in Corinth, it's a very weird state. It's a very weird ritual. And the strangest thing about it is Paul doesn't give us much. He doesn't really condemn it. He doesn't endorse it. He just kind of uses it in his argument about how silly and inconsistent their actions are. That's all. We know how he's using it. We know what he's trying to do and bringing it up. We just don't really fully understand what was going on in Corinth. But like I said, the most likely thing is they were trying to get baptized on behalf of those that had died in faith and weren't baptized themselves. But again, it's a mystery. I don't really know. But I do know what Paul's trying to say here. He's showing them how foolish such a practice is. Why do anything on behalf of the dead? The dead are gone forever, according to these Corinthians. 
He's just using his hypothetical argumentation to completely break apart their system of thinking. He goes on to speak about the suffering and the persecution he's endured. And this is kind of where I want to focus as we end. All these things that he's endured on this, uh, for the sake of the, the preaching ministry that God had given him. He repeatedly risked his life, his health, his safety, his well-being, his reputation. He gave up everything. He was imprisoned. I mean, he catalogs all this. In the second letter that he writes to the Corinthians, he talks left and right and about the incredible uh, trials and tribulations that he's had to endure, endure on behalf of the gospel. Countless beatings, countless imprisonments. And his point is this, what good is any of this if there is no resurrection? What would he as an apostle have to gain if he gave up his life only to end up in the grave forever? If there's nothing to look forward to beyond his present trials. As he says there, he might as well just join in with the Corinthian way of doing things and say, oh, well then let's just eat and drink and be merry because who cares? Death is coming and what can we do? But Paul won't indulge that fantasy. He won't go with them there. And he knows what's going on with these Corinthians. Like I said, they were influenced by the culture. Here, Paul kind of makes the point himself. He, he, he quotes some old Greek play, Bad Company Ruins Good Morals, showing them that it, it, you know, as a church, they had failed to be salt. They had failed to change the culture around them with the, the awesome proclamation of the gospel because they lost their foundation. And so, instead of influencing culture, they ended up being influenced themselves. They ended up subjecting their Christian thinking to the thinking of the world and getting rid of some important things along the way. We can't lose sight of the hope of the resurrection. It is of first importance, according to Paul. Because again, not only do we see the victory of Christ, his vindication as the Messiah, as the, the sent one, who's ushering in God's eternal kingdom. Not only does it vindicate Jesus, but it also gives hope to us. It shows us what is to come. It's not a matter of secondary importance. It's not one of those things in the Bible that we can all disagree on or have our own opinions on. It's foundational. Christ is the first fruits of the coming harvest pointing directly to what awaits us. So now in next week's passage that Gordy will be preaching, he's going to explain more in depth um, what this will look like. Um, but spoiler alert, it's pretty amazing, <laughs> the, 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 uh, the resurrection bodies that are to come when Jesus returns. If you're like me, you grew up with uh, a different vision of heaven. You maybe, you know, come, we got it from like cartoons, like the Wile E. Coyote version, where we're going to spend all eternity in Cloud City, and we're going to be, you know, floating around wearing white robes, and we're going to be see-through, um, and we're going to have harps, and we're going to just, it's just going to be that kind of thing. But uh, uh, the Bible has a, a much better vision for eternity. And that's not some disembodied spiritual existence where we're just whatever. That's not the, the biblical vision of eternity. The biblical vision, as we saw, is that God returns and restores creation. He makes all things new. He raises us up and gives us these glorified bodies that are incredible. They're not uh, tainted by sin or disease or aging or pain or soreness, none of those things. Amen. And for Paul, this is a great source of hope. You can bet as someone who had destroyed his body in service of the gospel, that was an incredible sense of hope. An incredible source of hope, I should say, excuse me. 
It's, it, it continues to give hope to us today as we endure the, the, the pains of, of, of life in this world, as we face disease and sickness, as we face all our many limitations. What an incredible hope that we have that God's going to restore everything and God's going to raise us up in new bodies. So yeah, stay tuned for that. It's going to be amazing. The biblical vision for eternal life is incredible. The question is, and the question I want to leave us with as we uh, prepare to worship more and through music, is what about today? Are you living in light of the resurrection? Am I living in light of the resurrection? That's something that I've been really convicted by as I've been preparing this message. You see, for Paul, his belief in the resurrection, as we see, sustained him, gave him hope, it gave him power to endure, motivated him to live sacrificially and heroically for Jesus, for the sake of the gospel. He's willing to suffer He's willing to endure hardship because he knew that everything that this world could possibly throw at him would feel like light and momentary troubles compared to the glory that awaits. Those are his words, not mine. Light and momentary troubles. When I look at my own life, my pursuits, my relationships, my bank statements, my schedule, would I say, hey, there's a guy living in light of the resurrection? Or would I say, hey, there's a guy who's living like this is all there is. There's a guy living to just get all he can out of this life. See, the Bible calls us to a vision for something much bigger. It calls us to fix our eyes on, on the work accomplished by Christ Jesus in his death and resurrection. To receive this gospel message, to build our lives on it and to let it set our course and give us hope and motivation for the rest of our lives until Christ returns. This awesome resurrection isn't just good news for our future, it's good news right now. It impacts our present. It sustains us, it empowers us, and fills us with hope so that we can live sacrificially and courageously for Jesus. So let's pray now that we will live in that hope and that we will live in light of the resurrection. Oh, Father God, we do just pray that you would fill, fill us with your spirit. Give us eyes to see what you're doing in this world. Give us a, a compelling, amazing vision of your victory, of what you've accomplished and what you continue to accomplish. Remind us every day of where this is all heading. Remind us of your work in this world the new creation that's coming. And I pray that we would today and tomorrow and every day until then, that we would work for that new creation, that we would live in light of not only what you've done, but what you continue to do. I pray that we would be like Paul, that we would be empowered to do amazing things because we know what you have done and what you will do. I pray that we'll be filled with such hope that we will be heroic in our actions, that we would embrace suffering and sacrifice knowing that anything we endure in this world is like light and momentary troubles compared to what awaits. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.